Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, state-of-the-art studios of Atlaw Radio, this is True Crime Uncensored with the imaginary Burl Bear. Today's program produced with great disdain by Magic Manalan of the Atlaw Radio Network. Today, we're going to be grilling a different swordfish. Yes, it's Burl Bear himself and our special guest, Punch, a.k.a. Burl. I'm Burl. Hi, Burl. Hi. We're it's waiting. a pleasure to be a guest on the show. Yeah, I guest on your own show. We're talking about Volume 1 of Stealing Manhattan. Ah, yes. A three-volume masterpiece. It's available now in hardback, paperback, ebook, and coming soon in audiobook. Hello, Punch. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm going to be uh, grilling the two of you like a swordfish today. Excellent. Honored to be here. Honored to be here today. <laughs> Burl. Yes. So, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the untold story of the world's greatest gym uh, thief in New York. How did you meet Punch? I met Punch through Daniel Jennis, the apologetic bandit. <laughs> oh, and artiste. Yeah, and artiste and author of the book Sentence, Ten Years and a Thousand Books in Prison. Uh, he sent me an email that said, somebody I want you to meet. And uh, he sent me a message from Punch, and uh, Punch and I started communicating, and I went, this is one hell of a story, uh, and we hooked up, and the rest is literary history. Well, it's <laughs> just started. Um, you know, if yeah. I ever get an email from uh, a former criminal that says, I have someone I want you to meet, I'd be a tad trepidatious. You'd be a tad trepidatious? <laughs> trepidatious? I might be recalcitrant and contumacious. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking. Uh, I don't think in this uh, in this hour we're going to be able to uh, to go through volume one, but we're going to start at the beginning. Punch, why don't you introduce us to your parents? Oh, mom and dad, mom and dad. Oh, wow, wonderful characters. Uh, my father, he um, was uh, a genuine character when God made him. Uh, God broke the mold. And uh, this guy, whoever he met, a true gentleman by every sense of the word. And Mr. Stan, he, he, he was the most remarkable, most amazing man that you could ever meet. Hollywood was after him. I said, I wish I could introduce you to my father personally today, you know, to the view, to the listeners. But unfortunately, he passed uh, last uh, June uh, on my mom's birthday. Still alive and she's gorgeous. Yeah, she's still, still gorgeous. It, her gorgeousness did not fade with the years. Uh, we need to give a standing ovation to Burl for um, writing the Stealing Manhattan book. I mean, the author, I take my hat off to him. Um, you're getting rants and raves. I mean, the book is tremendous. It, it is. Uh, yeah. doing really good things. Did you I, like I, it, Mark? You read it, I, Yes, I've gone through it. Uh, it's excellent. And then... Uh, it's just, you know, it just keeps getting more and more fascinating as the time passes through the book. It's incredible. Yes. Go ahead, yeah. Punch. I just want to point something out that's very important for, for the listeners to understand is that there's three um, lives of other men. You have a private life, right? You have um, a personal life, and then you have a secret life. And I'm introducing all my lives to you. You know, um, I'm introducing my secret life to you. 
And this is something that just does not happen in a true crime book. And it's exceptional. So I thank you. I thank you, Bill, for, for finding, you know, the parallel and the truth to grasp everything that we needed to grasp. Well, thank you. Yeah, okay. So when, where, where did your father grow up? He grew up in a town called Novi Sad. In, uh, it was in Yugoslavia. Right now, uh, Novi Sad is uh, located in Serbia. So, yeah, he's, uh, he's raised in a very uh, eclectic uh, region of the world. The, yeah. What was his experience with the Nazis like? Well, that was, uh, you know, that was something that he used to, uh, you know, tell us about stories. He encountered fear as a young boy. Um, you know, he, he got caught. He got caught by actual Nazis, you know, and, um, you know, they, they, did th- they did things to him. And, uh, you know, he, he, he suffered from uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome for many years. My father's the epitome of uh, PTSD uh, from, from what he's seen, and uh, he survived it. He survived it, and, uh, yeah. I mean, Bob, you could interject into this. Yeah. Right? See, what what uh, happened, according to his memoirs, is that he was playing outside, and where they lived was actually behind the Jewish synagogue. The Nazis at first thought he was a Jewish kid, which he wasn't, uh, and so they were basically going to kill him. When they found out who he was and who his dad was, who was uh, quite a very important person and not Jewish, they didn't kill him, but instead they did other things that uh, best left to your uh, sadistic and uh, perverted imagination. Horrible. And, uh, he was never quite the same again. It really traumatized him. Uh, in fact, uh, he was so upset that he and his uh, cousins, uh, whatever, uh, would, would drop incendiary devices like the homemade bombs on the Nazi tanks as they went through the streets for like the second floor of buildings. <laughs> you know, they joined like the uh, the junior the rebel bombs resistance. or something they were throwing at the at the Nazis. Yeah, yeah, they were going, they were retaliating. They had like little gangs and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, they, they, they had like a, yeah, it was pretty interesting. I mean, growing up in that time, he told me that, uh, you know, they had a group of uh, young uh, children that were part of the gang that his uh, uh, cousin was the head of. And uh, the age disparity difference is between five to like 14, I guess, you know. So a lot of these kids were orphans. And uh, your father, uh, as he grew up, went into journalism. This got him into a yeah. lot of trouble, didn't it? Yeah, as a journalist, he uh, he got in trouble by writing about uh, orphan children. And most, a lot of them were Jewish, these children. Correct. There were a lot of Jewish orphans. And uh, Stan, uh, which is uh, Punch's father, kind of became their protector, their confidant. And he lobbied in print to protect these children and help these children. And that really uh, pissed off, shall we say, the uh, government. Uh, Stan had a protector in a high-ranking position that kept him from... Yeah, his dad. Stare. And who was that? Well, his, his dad, but his dad was also best friends with uh, the guy who was Ian Fleming's model for James Bond. <laughs> uh, was um, it a master spy. Yeah, master spy. Anyway, so uh, uh, Stan actually wound up, uh, shall we say, uh, taking a run for the border, escaped from... Uh, from Serbia, and he had uh, corresponded with HIAS, the uh, Hebrew International Assistance Society, uh, and they became aware of his defense of the Jewish orphans, and so he came to America in 1957. Well, like, my father, he would do whatever he had to do with honor and respect, 
and she always, uh, my father found himself in the United States working as a main uh, worker, um, right, really climbing this ladder up by being loyal, by being a trusted member of the community, a taxpaying member. Okay, he was going to Columbia at night. Um, that's where he was going and he graduated English, you know, because when you're an immigrant, they give you an option to go to a college to learn English, right, at night school. My father went to Columbia, graduated, uh, you know, his class, whatever, and, uh, you know, climbed the ladder, the social ladder, the economic ladder of workers. And then uh, he met this wonderful woman in the Catskills. Ah, Amy. <laughs> Amy. Oh, the, the women. Yeah, well, the women is what, the, this is what progresses Mr. Stan, and this happened three times in his life. So I'm going to let Bill, I'm going to pass the ball to Bill because I know he loves this part. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> he beats this to this woman in the, uh, like this yeah. incredibly wealthy family that had uh, one of the uh, resort places there in the Catskills. How wealthy, Bill? Really, how wealthy? Normal wealthy or extraordinarily wealthy? Extraordinarily wealthy. <laughs> and uh, uh, they were just kind of good friends, and they both got jobs of working at uh, a school. He's teaching art uh, and uh, as therapy for a kind of, you know, for, yeah, therapy for kids. Mm -hmm. And she comes over to borrow a book, and the next thing you know, they're smooching, and one kiss leads to another, and she asks him to marry her. And he thinks it over, and he goes, hmm, good deal, okay. <laughs> so they get married, and she's Jewish, and he doesn't tell her he's not, but he has such a reputation, a good reputation, as a champion for Jewish children, that they assume he's Jewish. And they have this elaborate wedding, three rabbis, special guest stars, what a big Megillah. <laughs> right? And so, yeah, it was a big thing. And I read about it in the paper. It was such a big deal, such a big wedding. And everything's fine until he comes home early one day and she's in bed with another woman. Well, for a Serbian man, that's kind of an insult. Uh, that's emasculating. Emasculating. So uh, he goes into the kitchen, gets a big butcher knife, comes into the bedroom. They think maybe he's going to use it on them. He doesn't. He cuts a big slice right through the middle of the mattress between the two women <laughs> and turns around, walks out, has the marriage annulled, keeps quiet about why, although the family knows, and he gets to uh, leave the marriage with a whole bunch of parting gifts, <laughs> including two delis, an Alfa Romeo, and a bunch of money, and uh, moves on from there. Uh, yeah. Then, uh, they were driving Ferraris in New York City at that time, in Jaguars, like, you know, they were very wealthy. The only thing that she needed to do was marry a man, because the grandma knew. And Stan was the perfect guy, she thought. But, obviously, yeah, things turned away very quickly. Yeah. And, and Bill, uh, the way you depicted the mattress, how it gutted like a... Fish. It gutted a whale or something. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was... <laughs> you just imagine. Get yeah. the movie right there. Anyway, so then, then he, uh, he has another marriage to another very wealthy young lady, uh, Leslie Olmstead. And they have a they have a child, and uh, but Stan has uh, you know it's interesting because there are people who only act out their frustrations and their anger when it's safe, and it's only safe with someone who loves them, and it was the same with Stan. You would never know his emotional scars unless you were really close to him emotionally. Otherwise, you would never know because he was suave, he was debonair, he was wonderful, he was kind, he was polite, except. 
if you were really close to him emotionally, then you would see the anger that would come out from the PTSD, etc. Secret life, yes. Yeah. He had two secret lives, basically. And so that marriage didn't last. Do you have any contact with your half-brother? I did contact him, and I had some pictures. told me that uh, his mother didn't ever tell him very much about your dad. Uh, he knew who was well, dead. Well, nothing good. Yeah. Nothing good. Yeah. But that's all. She always said, water's under the bridge. And then, and then... Ta-da. And then, and then Branka from uh, Serbia. Hold on. Branka, Branka, Branka Serbian. Yes, Branka, my mom, uh, the model, the artist, the young 18-year-old kid that came to New York and met my suave debonair dad. Right? I mean, like you know, the closest thing you can get to James Bond is probably my dad. <laughs> there you go. So that's what she was seeing. She seen this guy with a, a penthouse apartment with so much silver uh, in his place. He used to call him Mr. Silver, you know? So she didn't know that he came from the same uh, uh, country of Yugoslavia, you know, the former country of Yugoslavia. She didn't know that until, until Rada, her aunt, let her know, yes, Stan, he's from the country, and uh, he's throwing a party, and, you know. Yeah, Branka was swept off her feet. My mom was totally, she felt help over here over my dad. She said that he was a great dancer, and my mom loved to dance. So the guy can boogie. He can cut a rug. Oh, yeah, your dad was actually trained uh, professionally in ballroom dancing. He was also trained in ballet, which he thought yeah, was a little yeah. feminine, but he thought the moves were good. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what? The guy was like, you know, he grew up and he was like Elvis. He had the hip movements, you know, and, uh, you know, that, that, that actually, um, you know, inspired him to, uh, to uh, be a womanizer, you know, because he, he, he had a secret weapon. Guys couldn't dance as good as him, you know? So, you know, that was also another uh, plus that he had. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just like, you know, like, my dad was Superman to me, you know? He was, he was, he was it. He was, he was the guy. And, of course, what, what uh, your mother, who, of course, you were born a little bit later, but what she didn't know until she married him was that he was already doing heists when she married him. In Europe, you know, Vicky and, and uh, these guys, they were, they were high guys in, in France and in Germany first, you know. And uh, I know you mentioned in the book that Vicky has a brother, he has a store, a chair store in Madison Avenue. He's not a criminal, but uh, his brother is huge criminal. And Vicky's uh, the guy that had, you know, uh, Bruno Sulak and... and uh, For those who don't know, Bruno Sulak is probably the most famous gentleman thief criminal France in all of Europe. Legendary. Not Serbian, by the way. Yeah. But that's where he's famous, most of all, is in France. Poland. He's, he's Polish. He's a Polish guy. But, yes, he hung around with Serbians, so a lot of people thought he was Serbian because his best friend was Steve um, Novakovic or Steve Jovanovic. Yeah, Steve Jovanovic. And what happened is now this right here, ladies and gentlemen, is a movie and a half. These guys, they used to do heists, only the two of them, gentlemen heists, they would come in uh, into the Cartier uh, store in the south of France with a tennis racket and a rose, and they would take all the jewelry, leave the rose to the beautiful woman that works there, and say thank you very much, and leave, without anybody getting hurt. Well, anyway, they repeated the process. They did the Carlisle Hotel. 
They did, they did Cartier. They did um, a bunch of other uh, large stores uh, in the south of France. And, and these guys always got away with it. Now, they got caught. One guy got arrested. His partner robbed a helicopter and a pilot with a machine gun. And he was actively breaking out and spreading out of prison. And they die at a hail of fire because the, the, the tower, the guard tower got to it. And I don't know what happened to the helicopter, but they both died because they were trying to escape. They were trying to just run out of prison. Now, that's what I call a real high action, action movie. These are the type of guys I was about. And the way they got out with the keys to get unlock the doors, they were provided by a fellow working with your father, the key man, the moth. Oh, yes, <laughs> he, yes, he provided the keys <laughs> to open the doors. Well, yeah, well, yeah, well, you know, Bicky, Bicky, Bicky was my father's friend uh, uh, long before the moth came on the picture, on the scene. You know, uh, Bicky and my father have been friends for since the 60s, 50s, yeah, 62. You know? uh, but the Malt, the Malt is a younger gentleman that came around in the 80s, like 82. The Queens, uh, yeah, that's another gentleman that, uh, that, that, that that's also uh, in the book and a big inspiration in my life. And uh, he was the key man. He, this guy was, uh, like, he became, uh, you know, the guy that was uh, designing all the active tools and the tooling and, and all that stuff that goes on, you know, the logistics. Kind of like Q. On the mechanical stuff, you know? So he's like Q from James Bond, basically. You know, that's what he became. My father funded his operation and his intelligence, uh, you know, operation on how to uh, reverse uh, the technology. So, like, let's say we have a, a, a Russian uh, tank, right? And we want to build it. What we're going to do, we're going to break it down piece by piece, right? And we're going to build it piece by piece, you know? And, and this is what he was good at. He's an expert at breaking things down. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you want a key for something? You want a, a payphone or a key? You bring him the payphone, he'll make the key for it. You know, like, you know, you want a parking meter? You want to open all the parking meters in LA? <laughs> Take all the money out? He'll make the key for it. Like, that's how good he was. You know, so you want to make a key to take the posters out in the, in the bus station so you can put your own artwork in there? Hey, he got the key for that. Like, you know, so he taught me how to pick locks at age seven, eight, when I got hit by a car. I was in a, I had a, I mean, they almost, I almost lost my leg. They were going to amputate my leg. I had a compound fracture and I had a hip cast for like a year. So my babysitter was the key man, uh, AKA the moth. The moth, T-Man, right? So him and Embry used to babysit me, and, uh, you know, they, these are the guys that actually told me that my father was a criminal and a crook and a thief, you know? And uh, when they actively, like, spilled the beans, like, I always knew this, but, you know, it never came out of anybody's mouth. These guys told me, they're like, you know who that is? She's the boss. The guy's the boss, and you're going to be the next boss. So make sure you learn everything, you know? So, you know, my job is giving out the coffee, making the coffee. I knew how you like this coffee. Two sugars and, uh, and a little cream, you know. Uh, yeah, like, you know, uh, I knew everybody's coffee taste, and I used to get Ghana, I used to make me get tips. And the tips would be like a gold coin or a necklace, you know, like a ring or something jewelry, you know, 14K, 18K with diamonds in it. You know, and uh, yeah, and, and that's basically like, you know, all our houses and our places of residence became like 
uh, gang uh, bends, you know, and you'd find six, seven, eight active criminals in there with their shirts off, and then you'd see their tattoos, their prison tattoos, and they're smoking cigarettes and, 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 uh, and drinking, and the smoke is heavy in the air, and I'm, you know, in the bedroom at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock uh, in the morning, you know, peeking to see if uh, Santa Claus is here or something, you know, <laughs> and it's all these badass criminals counting beating, weighing it on a scale, you know, I mean, it's quite a sight for me to see at 3 or 4 or 5, you know, like, I grew up into this. So it was very exciting, and, and uh, you know what? The, the sensation and all the rape from the first book, and that, that I mean, part two and part three is coming out faster than we even thought, because, yeah, it, it's, a lot of people are buying the book, and I can't believe it. I can believe it. <clears throat> I can't tell. Well, it's the first time that a, a person that's not a rat, a person that's not a collaborator or a cooperator or witness with the Fed that ever came out with a book. If you guys notice that every mafia book and every true crime book mostly deals with a rat and a person that cooperated with the government. If I cooperated with the government, I would never do a day in prison, let alone 16 years, right? right. Uh, let alone 21 years of my life, you know, I was in the system. So, so uh, you know, and every day to day. My first time that I was going to prison, uh, for my cases, I did like five, six, seven burglaries on 47th Street all put together. I was going to get maybe a month or two months in Rikers Island. That was it. Because I had money and I had an attorney. And my attorney, his name was Ronald Rubenstein and Jojo Carrazzo, I'm Nicky Carrazzo. And these guys were powerhouse. And my judge is Renee White. So I wasn't going upstate. I wasn't going to go upstate. I wasn't going to go to do any time. I was getting off with, with a slap on a wrist. And I stolen already 10 to $15 million already by then. Like, think about it. And they're going to slap. I'm not even going to do time. I'm not even going to do time. You know, my, my sentence is going to be six months, five years probation. And uh, what happened was, if this happened, this probably would have changed my life because I would have had probation. I mean, they would have been monitoring me. Instead, uh, you know, I was only supposed to do uh, six months, five years probation. The six months, I already had like three, four months in Rikers, so I only had to do another 60 days, and I would have been home. 60 days. 60 days, and I would have been home for, from those seven burglaries, the ones that I got caught by Joseph Keenan, and the ones that I got caught by Bill and the Dog, and the ones that are on the front page of the paper, and all those cases. Uh, yeah, I would have got nothing. 60 days. How is that possible? You know why? Because I had a high-paid lawyer, Ronald Rubenstein, okay? And that was my agenda. So what happens is, during this time, I have to report to the police station every single day because I'm out on a judge's bond bail, or meaning I have to sign the book every day. And during this time, I get kidnapped, okay, and uh, by Momo, by, by, by a criminal that was in our gang that was uh, persona non grata, meaning he was cut out the group. And uh, I got attacked, and uh, I was kidnapped, and, and I couldn't sign in the book, and I was gonna violate my probation. And uh, at the end of the day, the judge, the judge, I mean, I get arrested for kidnapping and a firearm because I wanted to... Uh, you to wanted escape, to kill Momo. <laughs> right? And, and anything turned out in my favor, actually watch this, everything turns out in my favor that I had to go upstate New York. And they give me a sentence of one to three. 
So all I had to do was one year and come home. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. I wound up doing seven years on that one to three. So out of one to three, I come home seven years later. So instead of 60 days, seven years later I come home because I caught more charges, federal charges, New Jersey charges. All the charges kept on popping up. And, and I was in prison and I maxed out. Meaning I did day for day. And when I came home in 1999, I had no parole. Meaning we would have no story. Being that I didn't have no parole made me become a criminal, notoriously. Because now I don't have any supervision. I just did seven years out of my life and I was only supposed to do 60 days. And I'm a little pissed. And I'm gonna start stealing like never before. And I'm gonna get them back. For all these years that I missed out. And I did. And I became a millionaire within a week. Probably that, 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 that week, yeah, that week I was already a millionaire. You know? And, uh, and, and that's, what, that's what gives us the part two and part three of the book. Because it's, the, it's even more sensational than the part one. It's more sensational and bigger than my father's and my mother's active story. And I did all the time. I copped out to all known and unknown charges in the Fed, in New Jersey, and in all the whole Tri-State area. And you know what? I did day for day. I did day for day, meaning they couldn't squeeze out any more time. Yeah, you, you did your full sentence. They could not monitor me. They could not follow me. They could say, here you bring men. I said, thank you, I know. And, and, uh, and I lived a life like you won't believe it. Well, we're going to get to that. Imagine the high. If I can sell this <laughs> and put this in a bottle, it's like capturing light in a bottle. You know, it's the most, <laughs> I can't explain it to you. It's the biggest dopamine rush the biggest drug ever is knowing how to open a safe and being free to do it and, and, and knowing to get away with it. So now I'm going full blast. I'm, 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 I'm working with people that I've met on the inside and I got a Rolodex so big that there's nothing going to stop me. And I was actively just hustling, making money from 1999 all the way till I got arrested in 2003. Okay? That's all I lasted. That's all I lasted. But I was stealing and robbing every single day. I mean, the smallest jobs were like, I don't know, 60,000, 70,000, you know? A day. A day, okay? That's the smallest. And I used to do two, three of those. And I do one big job where you give me 800,000, you know? Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, 800 grand, you know? Let me tell you. You know, 300 grand, 400 grand, 500 grand. That's a lot of money. Mm. Uh, he's a Jew thief, right? Uh, whenever they put, like, if you do a Jew thief, he pops up, this guy named Larry Lawton, okay? I contacted Larry Lawton. And I was like, hey, buddy, put me on the show. I want to talk to you. That's the guy that likes to tie people up. He goes into the jewelry stores. And this guy claimed that he robbed 15 to $25 million. Come on, I, I became a millionaire at 15 years old. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, like, uh, sound, uh, well, anyway, this is the truth, you know? If I had 1% of what I, what I had, Forget about it. <laughs> Today, I'm an honest person. I've been an honest person since 2013. I've been retired from crime. I have not trained. I have not lost that line. Uh, people tested me over and over. Um, I went to trial. I was facing 37 and a half years to life over here in Miami, and I beat the case because people were lying. You know, they, they, were, they were trying to put charges on me and, and, and use me and, and, and throw my name in the mud, and, and it's just horrible. And it created such an animosity for me to even go out and hang out with friends because 
it's just it's so bad. You know, it's rampant right now. What's happening? And if you realize, if you see, if you, if you guys watch the news, do you feel the smashing grabs all of a sudden that are happening yes. everywhere? Yes. What do you we think have an that? active group going through restaurants right now. There's people, I mean, there's smashing grabs all over the country right now. It's incredible. It's incredible. They're going into Louis Vuitton. They're going into uh, art studios. They're going into, uh, um, I mean, come on, come on. It's, it's ridiculous. 20, 30 of them. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, this is what this is what this caused. This is what this caused, you know. Uh, you know, from, from mouth to mouth, from prisoner to prisoner, from people seeing the book, from people seeing the success, you know. And I said to everybody, hey, guys, how many times you came to jail? 10, 20 times for the same thing? You got to change your profession, buddy. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's all I see. People there for multiple things, same thing, same block, same. And I'm like, Jesus, I mean, that's like, you know, you guys, you guys have a better chance of doing anything else but that, you know? And, and I was an educator in prison. I was an educator in prison. I started, I ignited the RTA program with Catherine Balkin, okay, uh, and, uh, and, and another friend of mine. That was in the Steven Seagal movie. He's a real actor, and that's how we started this. He was with me in, uh, in Rikers Island. His name is Jerry Sierra. I don't know if he's still on this earth, but uh, Jerry Sierra is in a very famous uh, Steven uh, Seagal movie, Out for Justice, where they're looking for Richie. Anybody yeah. know why Bobby Lupo killed Richie? Or, you know, remember that? Okay, yes. well. Um, yeah, I remember that's, that. Uh, that's that Jerry. He's downstairs, like in the, in the bar scene, and he says, we don't sell drugs here. He's a heavy guy. But this is the guy that was in prison with me, and we're right on, and he's talking about starting uh, a program to get criminals, uh, you know, to study, you know, uh, acting and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, stuff like that, you know, like theater, you know. And, and he had his, his, um, his active uh, acting coaches, they actually came into prison to visit us. And he started it, he actually started it in Simpson. So the RT program started uh, during that time uh, when, I, when I was in prison, and I also started a bodybuilding program with professional bodybuilders, bodybuilders that were actually like uh, sponsored by, um, you know, a professional bodybuilder, IBS uh, pro and stuff like that. Like, we did that, you know, well, through the contacts that I had. We, we, we made prisons a better place, you know, uh, instead of playing laser tag in the yard, you know, uh, we created art, art programs where you can paint, and uh, I think that's just a beautiful thing, a beautiful remedy for people that never uh, painted, that they never knew they had talent, and once they discover that they have, they found a new love for something or a passion, it makes me want to cry, you know? Yeah, well, I also had the pleasure of, of working on anti-recidivism programs at the uh, Washington State Penitentiary. And to see the change in people when they discover that they have talents and abilities and potential that they didn't realize they had and can act on it, it changes their life. And, uh, They'll never come back to jail. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because, and this is why I think it was all meant to be. It was all for a reason. And the reason why I came out this time on parole was for me to slow down and put the brakes on, right? And watch this. This is going to be in part three. I just want to give up people. I just want to give people a little taste of part three. But in part three, when I came home, I became a millionaire again, legitimately. And this time, through a company called Gaming Mods and Go Mods 
and I became the largest buyer for PlayStation, Xbox, controllers, and stuff like that in the United States. And I opened a, a gaming company. Uh, that's one thing. Then another thing, I became a multimillionaire gambling. And Bill could have tested this because I showed him I in it. real time <laughs> that I can hit jackpots actively anywhere on any machine. You know? And, it's and amazing. It is absolutely amazing. I have heard of people who can win because God has blessed them or something, like the guy who always won every sweepstakes, you know, or lottery, no matter what, how about the odds were, he knew he was going to win. I went with, we go into a casino, he puts money in his machine, my machine says, race you to the jackpot. Bam, 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 hits the jackpot. We go to another casino, he walks in, watch this, bam, 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 hits the jackpot. One point three million dollars three years in a row they kick him out of the casino <laughs> well yeah 1.8 million dollars yeah 1.8 i was paying taxes for 1.8 million dollars in a row i was winning uh, actively i have all the proof and receipts actually you know that's proof that's proof you know that, that's proof right there that it shows you that i legitimately made this much money and i paid taxes off well i made a lot of money over these years right uh winning losing to the casino but i i wasn't stealing I wasn't a criminal. I was doing something that was legit. And, and look what happens. Look what happens. So, yes, I'm kind of blessed in a way that I can't explain for winning and winning big. Um, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And, uh, yeah. So I get kicked out of the casino. <laughs> for uh, winning too much, yeah. And, and that's a shame because I never did anything wrong. I was the one that was actually the victim for like a $100,000 jackpot. And uh, that's another story. That's another book. And you know what? I just want to thank Bill Bear for giving me the ability and, uh, and the platform you know, to believe in me, to believe in a person you know, that has a character and a story that's amazing. You know, I'm blown away by my own story. <laughs> so, <laughs> you read your own book and you go, gee, that's my yeah. life? <laughs> the chief of police of New York City. Brian, you and you're out to dinner with your dad, and he, he comes over to the table and sits down, and he's telling your dad that the guys in his crew have to have real jobs and pay their taxes, and they can't just be gym thieves for a living. That they gotta, his crew has to have real jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he has to be respectable. And I just, this was something under the advice of his lawyer, of his, of his attorney at that time. And, uh, I mean, how many criminals do you know that have legal advice 24-7? <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of, uh, I think that's pretty pretty unique to have that. You know, um, it's a different level. It's a different level of thievery. Um, as, as Bill mentioned, he never, Mr. Stan never hurt anyone, uh, neither, neither did I, um, you know, in, in, uh, in any one of these uh, heists. And, uh, and whichever one my father masterminded or whichever one I masterminded, they were always successful. Who masterminded the Miracle Watch Company? That was me. That was mine, yes. That when would have been school. completely successful if you hadn't made an, an error in judgment and violated one of your own rules. You yeah, went back in. Yeah, that's, this, this happens with the youth, you know, because I was young, and with youth comes breed. And, uh, you know, you, you believe in, uh, you don't believe in anything other than yourself. And I really thought that uh, I had it under control. But, um, and it wasn't my fault because one of the lookouts actually um, left his location. And this is why um, I got caught. This is a, a big deal, by the way. Oh, well, yeah. Very big deal. 
Yeah. You, you had to hide in the uh, <laughs> hide uh, hide in the wall or something for four hours. Yeah, yeah. That must have been boring. Unfortunately, I was hiding like four hours, two, two three hours or something like that uh, inside the the wall of the building. Um, I made it all the way downstairs um, from where the heist was happening, and I was almost out. Uh, but the dog, this dog that they had um, by the name of Billion. Received a filet mignon steak from uh, Peter Luger's or Smith and Walensky's or one of those steakhouses, and he was on the front page of a uh, of a New York Post and Daily News mm. that they uh, caught um, a few um, wanted burglars in the Diamond District. Yeah. Yeah, I bet the cops were all taking a bunch of free watches, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's another thing that you mentioned that you remember because by the time we went to our trial, there was no watches left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, <coughs> dismissed for lack of evidence. Yeah, dismissed for lack of evidence. Where are where are those gold doubloons and pieces of eight handed down from Applegate? <laughs> that chest is here, but wait, where are those gold doubloons and pieces of eight? <laughs> 50 cents, yeah, that's right. Um, I had some, I had some uh, really good interactions with people that used to be part of my life during this time, um, actually a part of my life today, again, such as um, an old friend of ours, John D'Angelo, mm. and he's dying to speak with you and give you some of his insight and stories about Mr. Stan and about that... Uh, ecstasy run that we had which is a pretty uh, uh, I, I like that part in the, in the book it's, oh. a, it's a great chapter but John was there and you could upgrade the book with uh, with some of the things that he uh, remembered yeah we can um, put it in the sequel well I always figured that uh, Howard was a good manager to have on this planet or uh, off of it and uh, it was one because you know passing just before he passed suddenly passed away we had a very long, <laughs> really long lunches up in Stevenson Ranch, about three, four hours. And he was talking about how much he loved this project and his great affection for you. And I was really looking forward to doing great things with this. And then he passed away. And I think, as you say, uh, it's like all of a sudden he's back working for us. He's putting deals together. Yes, yes, absolutely. He's a beautiful spirit. He was such a dear friend, the best manager anyone could ever ask for. And I feel so privileged that he actually enjoyed, you know, my company over some other uh, people that he managed company. And that totally, like, uh, did it for me, you know, because he was just an extra special type of guy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. We definitely need to repay him the favor and uh, create something in in his honor and uh, and, and uh, continue his legacy because the guy's uh, you know one of a kind uh, type of guy, just like yourself, Burl. Uh, oh, I know it's not easy being a living legend. No. <laughs> not easy. I would not go easy. over. I'd go over. Yes. Yeah, so we have so much good going on now. So much good and positive vibes, which is important. And uh, I know we're going to pull through and. Uh, as I said, we were, were we, we started strong, and we're going to end strong. And uh, and I guess that's the final note because feeling Manhattan will survive. And uh, what and all the other projects that they have that uh, that that will be uh, forked.
from uh, uh, Steel in Manhattan, uh, there are many, there are many uh, great projects that, that can be done. And I just, you know, I, I'm very hopeful. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there is, see, the way this thing was originally envisioned from a true crime perspective, because it's all true, it is all criminal, is we broke it down into three, uh, three shall we say, uh, time frames or decades or social significant situations. The first one, Steely Manhattan, covers from when basically the origin of the universe up until about uh, 2000, uh, the one you first get out of the slammer. When you get out of prison and you get married and all that stuff, to uh, whatever that yeah, is. That's, that's, uh, that's after 2010. So no, first time, first time you get out of prison. You get you married. Oh, first what, time was ninety. I'm sorry. First time was ninety nine when I came home. Okay, this goes from the origin of the universe to ninety nine. Volume two covers say uh, two thousand three or two thousand one forward, and then the third volume picks up more contemporary. It'll cover the whole gamut. Yes, more current, more yeah. current with what I've done after um, after parole. How I became a successful poker player, gambler, how I made millions again, you know, and how I became, uh, you know, the process of becoming a, an author, a published author, um, movie business, learning new things. And it's just a phenomenal time in my life. And, and as I said, I'm living my best life. And I love that all you are included uh, because I started with uh, Outlaw Radio and uh, Bill Bear is my mentor. Oh, and boy. I absolutely love him and adore him. <laughs> absolutely love that's him. That's why I'm adorable. That's, that's absolutely correct. And we need to make this successful because um, I feel that this story owes um, tremendous gratitude to all these people that uh, propelled it forward. As I said, because this is a, a golden age and it's never going to happen again. Um, you know, we can never duplicate or repl replicate these, uh, these heists. Uh, it can never be done on this level anymore with uh, so many because the, the numbers are, as I said, astronomical. You know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of heights. Um, you know, not one or two. And most of the movies that you see in Hollywood are based on just one, um, one, one height. One of, your and, one of yours or Mr. Stan's heights, yeah. You know, I'm just, I'm just comparing it. I'm just comparing it. And also, if I... If I chose to cooperate, for example, I would have been—I wouldn't have been in prison either. Then I would have had a movie a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's what you, you know? get for being ethical, criminal. <laughs> exactly. This is what you get for keeping your mouth closed. Because if I opened my mouth, I would have probably changed the whole um, dynamics of Forty uh, Seventh Street and all the criminals in New York. Because a lot of people would have uh, perished and went to prison. And I don't—I I, I, never—I never believed in that. Um, I don't believe in it still, and I just, you know, I'm just happy the way that I did my time, and I survived uh, a lot of, uh, you know, prison time uh, today to, uh, to tell a story that's sensational, you know, and that's, this is, this is meaningful to me, that I changed my life around, and I changed it because um, I couldn't be a criminal anymore. I couldn't do what I loved mostly because the people were so bad. And so many people were cooperating and telling, and it was just no way that I could put myself out there uh, again. But um, you get out of prison, you've done your time, you're being a good boy, and you are suddenly accused of shipping rocket launchers to Serbia for the Bosnian War—a totally bogus charge. Bogus charge. 
bogus church. They said that I had sheriff rocket launchers, LAWs, and a container with my fingerprints all over it. And I was sponsoring a war and funding a war. And, uh, you know, MP3 machine guns, MP6, a bunch of things. They gave me a list. They gave me a whole list that came out of a container, and they said my fingerprints are all over it, and I'm going to get charged for war crimes and uh, God knows what else. And I retained Robert S. Wolf, one of the most uh, prominent attorneys, uh, federal attorneys at that time. And uh, he gave them help because it was, it was bogus. It was not right for them to do that. And uh, they weren't playing fair. They weren't well, no, because they're making it up for one thing. Possibly something like that with other people or, or something, but I was not involved, you know, and they have their um, information, you know, uh, not correct. And... Um, but it cost me a tremendous amount of money to fight. I would imagine so. It was United States of America versus Pavle Punch yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I see my name against United States of America in bold letters. It's, it's, uh, it's, it affects you. It affects you. I get post-traumatic stress syndrome sometimes. Oh, we're going to trigger it, folks. Watch out. But you won that one. You won that case. Your lawyer proved to them oh. that... It wasn't you. It wasn't me. Very happy the way everything's happening because um, I've been a patient uh, camper inside prison. You know, I could have got out any time I wanted to. And this is another thing. Uh, everything that's happening today is current and is needed. Meaning the people that are coming back in my life, such as Victor Lapai, John D'Angelo, um, you know, these guys are, are um, uh, another guy, Fred Tiplitsky, just came out of prison. And uh, all these guys are witnesses. Uh, to things that I've done previously and things that I probably forgot about. So you could always go to them and get more um, information, you know, that uh, an eyewitness actually seen and that was there. So all I'm saying is that we have tremendous amount of momentum right now. We, uh, we have to have Punch back and talk more about your, his father and mother's life. Yeah, Stealing Manhattan, you can buy it right now in paperback, hardback, ebook, and coming soon the audiobook.